This is a Solitaire Media original podcast. Hello, welcome to the Galway podcast. This is Fender Jackson. This episode is a celebration of one of the gems of Galway City, arguably the biggest gem, and that is St. Nicholas's Collegiate Church. The authority on the matter is Jim O'Higgins, a.k.a. Jim Higgins. This is Jim's third appearance on the Galway podcast. He was a guest in the second episode, which is a history of Galway, as well as episode 18, The Three Castles Project. Jim has an encyclopedic knowledge of Galway, and every time we have him on, he seems to tease us with his knowledge on another subject. You'll hear him talk briefly towards the end about the Clatter Ring, so I think I might get him on again for the Ireland podcast and devote a whole episode to that. Okay, so let's go to that church chat without delay. I said without delay. Band, choral ending, please. This is the Galway Podcast. Hello, who are you and what do you do? I'm Jim O'Higgins. I'm the Heritage Officer and Conservation Officer with Galway City Council. And we're in this historic St. Nicholas's Collegiate Church doing a bit of a, an exploration of this wonderful place. Great. So, Jim, thanks very much for coming onto the podcast again. You featured on the first, I would say, first proper episode because uh, the introduction doesn't really count. And I asked you back then, well, we were talking about the history of Galway, and I asked you your favourite buildings. And without much hesitation, you seem to mention that St. Nicholas's Church was maybe the first one. So what I'd like to do today is talk about the history of the church, some of the quirks about it, but also the restoration work that you've been doing here. So it's up to you how you want to, by the way, you're going to hear banging in the background because you're still doing some of the reparation work here. So it's up to you how you want to handle this tour, if you like. Um, so first of all, we're standing, do you want to explain where we are standing? Okay, just to locate us. At the east end of the church is where the high altar is. That's so so a lot of people will be saying, where's the east end of the church? The east end of the church is where you face the rising sun and it's, uh, it's, it has a symbolic reference to the resurrection and so on. So the altar is usually at the east end of the church. That doesn't mean that there aren't other altars within the church in medieval times, in particular in the 14th century down to the 16th century, there are a multiplicity of altars. But the main altar is usually under the big east window. Sorry, 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 sorry to interrupt. And just uh, for anybody who still doesn't know where that is, that's the side that's pointing closest to Shop Street, correct? That's right. And we are in the south transept. So you have a nave, which comes from Navis ship. And then you have a chancel, which is the most sacred part of the church and where the high altar is. And then crossing in a cruciform manner, across those, you have transepts. And we are in the south transept of the church. And not just, more specifically, we are in an extension to the south transept, which was built by Nicholas Lynch in 1561. And that's where the uh, conservation work has been concentrated this year. 
There was funding allocated to the local authorities under the Community Monuments Fund. And the Community Monuments Fund, the aim is to restore or to conserve buildings of historical importance. There's also another fund, the Built Heritage Investment Scheme Fund, and the third one, the Historic Structures Fund. So over the last number of years, the local authority has been facilitating the getting of grants for the uh, for the church uh, to do vital work, really. Uh, so work was also done in the tower this year, uh, but that wasn't under the Community Monuments Fund. It was one of the other funds that funded that. So just to say something about the Community Monuments Fund, you can apply for say up to 100,000 in an exceptional circumstance you will get 120,000 um, so that's what was done this year to work on the transept and the place is a great ambiance it is fantastic but when you see the effects that the weather has even internally in the church you realise the real reason why we have to we have to get work done here Unfortunately, in the 1950s and early 60s, with the best will in the world, the people who were storing the building at the time, they used a cement-based mortar, which really doesn't give the building a chance to breathe. So moisture gets trapped in the core of the wall. What should they have used then? A lime mortar, natural lime mortar, like you would have had in medieval times. Um, added into the cement-based mortar, they also used bitumen. And unfortunately, that's coming to the end of its life, that mortar in a sense. And there's an awful lot of moisture behind it. It's been trapped. You can see the, the water coming down some of the funerary monuments that are embedded in the wall. And um, so the spalling of the stone and uh, bits of the stone are flaking away and uh, crumbling. So our solution really is to take off the render, the cement-based render, uh, expose the stone and then decide on a suitable lime mortar mix and put that on the wall then and hopefully um, repoint the exterior of the church as well. Uh, raised ribbon pointing was used many years ago in the restoration between 58 and 62. So we've taken the raised ribbon pointing off and again, that has the effect of allowing the stonework to breed. And we have just um, Lorik Matteo of Matteo and Mitchell, he's a conservator, stonemason, and uh, he has done that work along with his team. So the other members of the team then, we have 7L architects and we have an archaeologist, Frank Coyne, and because you have to satisfy every aspect of the heritage legislation, it's vital that you have an archaeologist on the job, that you have a conservator, conservation structural engineer, conservation architect, and so on. So they all form part of the team. And the work really stems then, if you go back a little bit, from a conservation and management plan that was put together for the church. Now, the whole idea of a conservation plan many years ago it was brought to Ireland by, from Australia and then to Britain and then the Heritage Council took it up in Ireland. But these plans, 
you sit down with all the people who have an interest in the in the church and you see what the needs of the people are and then you get together a plan. The old plans were simply called conservation plans. These days we tend to call them conservation and management plans. So the Heritage Council brought the concept to Ireland and the Heritage Council and various other bodies helped to fund many of the early conservation plans. So the Heritage Council funding is is also part of it uh, and the contribution, of course, from uh, the City Council. And uh, we're always anxious to help out because this is a fantastic place. Um, it's It's a place where... Everybody from around Galway or further afield is always, always, always made to feel very welcome and it has a great atmosphere. So what we want to do is prolong the life of the church by conserving the bits that need to be conserved so that it can continue to function as a, as a church, as a, a place of historical interest but primarily as a church, but also a place where people come to uh, listen to wonderful music like we have in the background, and where people come as well to enjoy the heritage and the archaeology and other aspects of the, of the church. So it's really a community monument, so it's appropriate really that this work has been funded under the Community Monuments Fund. What we're doing here in the extension to the South Transept, which was built by Nicholas French in 1561, is we are, this is the pilot scheme really, we're taking off the plaster, we're applying new plaster, and we're seeing, seeking solutions to the, the dampness. You can see there, for instance, that there's water coming out along the uh, some of the monuments, and uh, that's because that's the only place it can come out. Uh, the render has trapped it, so it comes out along the points of least resistance. In other words, along the plaques and the and the carvings that are that are um, attached to the wall. So that's these things here. Yes, those will be uh, one of the funerary monuments, and the one that we're looking at at the moment is a particularly nice example of uh, a late medieval Gothic style almost flamboyant uh, wall tomb. It has the depiction of Christ showing his five wounds. It was built by the lynches. It has wonderful tracery above the the tomb niche Mm. and beautiful ornament on the base of it as well. And originally that ornament was probably painted. Now we have taken some samples of of paint from the surface of the... um, of the stonework and we hope to get those analysed. So that's part of the ongoing work. We also noticed once the plaster was stripped that there was a little arch here at the base on the left-hand side of the monument. So we think that that was what's termed a relieving arch, a crude arch of, of stone vuzwars on top of a lintel and below that then there's a void. So the void probably, now this has been truncated, uh, it's been cut off by later developments in the building, but it's possible that this void led down to the the vault underneath the Lynch Monument. We have another Lynch Monument on our right here, 
and this is the reputed site of the burial of James Lynch Fitzstephen, the man about whom there is much lore. He's supposed to have hung his own son and so on and so forth. But it was also the tomb of his relatives as well, the French's. So the, which one is that? that? That's this one here. Okay. So what I will do is I will um, take photographs of these and put them on the Instagram account and uh, add descriptions. And this tomb really only the underworks of it survive but um, again there are substantial traces of paint on it there's the coats of arms and the merchant's marks of the people who are buried here and the arms include those of Lynch and Atai and um, those are two of the tribes of Galway the 14 tribes of Galway so we know that this must have been far more extensive originally, but perhaps during the um, uh, the 17th century uh, it was partly demolished. We can see, for instance, there are examples of iconoclasm where some of the angels and uh, the figures of saints were defaced. Were defaced. So that's, that's visible over on a third lynch tomb over here on the left and that's the far left over there that, this so, one here okay, which, in, which incorporates a window yeah. and the tree if you look at the coat of arms it's like uh, tree shamrocks or tree trefoils as the heraldry goes and below that then there's an angel and the angel is holding something in its hands but it's very difficult to know what it is until you understand this in terms of continental tombs. Often you'll have figures of angels holding a, a drum-like or crescent-like object. And this was a surface on which candles or tapers were lit. And the idea was that the monument was not just a tomb, it was also an altar. And we're in what is effectively a chantry chapel where not only are there people buried here, but masses were said for the souls of the dead. And if you have a surface where you had candles being lit and held by an angel and whatever, it emphasized a belief in the idea of purgatory and that you could pray for the souls of the dead and this, that this was beneficial to them. But in, say, um, Protestant belief or, or Puritan belief in particular, in the 1650s when the Cromwellians were here, this would have been really anathema because th their idea really was that once you died, you were either among the elect and went up or you went down and that no number of prayers for the dead would, would, uh, would improve their situation. So there's lots of interesting iconography, heraldry, sculpture, there's a wealth of there's a wealth of material here. It's just it's a part of uh, Goa's architectural gem, really. But of course, it's also a living church. Various denominations worship here: Syrian, uh, various Orthodox churches, Church of Ireland, and uh, so it's a place that has to be in continual use. And we have to strike a balance between maintaining 
maintaining all the fabric, making sure that it's restored and conserved, and making sure that it's also a functioning and a functioning building and a building that is enjoyed. Do you have a grandparent that you never met? Do you wonder what they were like? What type of life did they have? What type of person were they? How did they laugh? Both of my grandfathers had passed before I was born. So in 2006, when there was no signs of my children arriving anytime soon, I video interviewed both my parents. I asked them about their lives, the holidays they had, their parents, their grandparents. How did they meet? What did they do and what were they like? Where's their final resting place? Some time elapsed, my children did come along, and then my mother passed on, and yeah, sure I miss her, but I still have a video of her telling me about her life story. Now, I video interview other people's older relatives as a present for their loved ones. If you want me to capture your special memories, please get in touch at saltillmedia.com. Thanks. This is the Galway Podcast. So Jim, whenever you talk about dates and so on, yeah. How do you know they are as old as they are? Is it through documentation or are you able to, and I said carbon date before and you corrected me because mm. carbon dating only occurs whenever there's um, an organism inside. Organic material, yeah. that's right. Well, there's a whole load of different ways. First of all, you have the historical documents and they will say that, for instance, they might say that the lynches built this extension and they might say that um, the grandfather of the, the lynch who built the extension had built the earlier transept. And they will record things like that. Um, so we do have some historical dates. Then we have a traditional date. We have a date of 1320. And that's the traditional date at which this place is supposed to have been founded. But recent studies of the architecture have shown that it might be at least a century earlier, so it could go well back into the 13th century. And you gain an appreciation of this, or they, they, you, you, come to a, a, you come to this conclusion by looking at the, the carvings, the mouldings, the types of tooling on them, and then you try to compare that with uh, sites elsewhere, like for instance at Clare Galway Abbey and so on. And so it's art history will supply you with uh, an approximate date. Then you try to combine that, you try to back up your evidence and see how um, maybe the historical dates, the, the written records reflect that. In some instances they do, in some instances they don't. But I think we can reasonably say that this is a church that has more than 700 years of history, it probably goes back well into the 13th century. And when you look at some of the individual monuments as well, there's a tomb which is usually referred to as the Crusaders' tomb. It has nothing really, we've no proven link to the Crusaders. So that's, so that's a sort of a traditionary uh, uh, I suppose, um, urban image, legend. urban legend, yeah. you know, and, you know, I suppose uh, people in the in the past would have said, well, the cross looks like a sword, which it does in a, in, in a vague manner. 
and there's a curve, there's two arms on the cross and there's a curve, so that might be the quillion of a sword and they put two and two together and get five. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing about that monument is that the inscription is one of the longest inscriptions in Norman French, which is the, uh, the language that the Normans would have been speaking when they arrived. It's one of the longest surviving inscriptions on a monument in Norman French to survive in the country. And what it says on it is, Pray for... He who prays for the soul of Adam Bury will receive so many days pardon. In other words, it goes back to this concept of uh, remission from from uh, suffering or from purgatory and so on that if you say prayers for the soul of this person that you will receive a remission on behalf of that person so when you look at these types of tomb with norman french inscriptions normally around the country they're invariably about the 13th late 13th or at the latest early 14th century so there's the french normans that built it well, there was, it, it, no, not necessarily in the sense that it was probably Irish builders, but whoever funded it, say for instance, uh, the, the Borgos were involved, a lot of, uh, a lot of other um, people were involved, but they might have been the initial funders. And then over the centuries then, most of the additions to it were made by members of the 14 Galway families known popularly as the 14 tribes of Galway. And the most prominent of those was the lynches, but you also have a transept on the other side of, of, of this room, uh, a transept which was extended by the, the French family. So you have a lot of people responsible, but um, they might have contributed money in their wills, for instance, it was popular to do so. Uh, or they might have decided that because they want their family to be commemorated in a monument in the, within the church, that they're willing to pay for uh, either part of the church or an extension to the church. But we had been looking for many years at, at the records, um, the historical records, and they mentioned that the Lynches built a tower at the end of their so transept extension and the tower is still there they also mentioned that the lynches had an organ and the third thing they mention is that the lynches had a, a loft an organ loft or a where where um the the organ was either played or where singing was done from the loft and it's only really when we took off the plaster that we found several corbels and these corbels supported a timber loft which ran across between the top of this tomb and the window over here. And a stained glass window. The stained glass window. Yeah. So it's only really, I mean, in later times when the loft was demolished, uh, people came along, broke away the, the corbels or the stonework supporting the loft and because it was no longer needed uh, in their eyes. So they rendered or they uh, put a coat of plaster over the stonework. And in order to do that, they just battered off what was sticking out. So if you look carefully here, 
mm-hmm. at a stone more or less on the shoulder of the window. You'll see a V shape on the mm-hmm. stone. And that continues on to the stone above it. Mm-hmm. And then there's a socket into which red brick has been put. Mm-hmm. So at some stage in the post-medieval times, probably the 18th century, when the loft was taken down, uh, they battered away the, um, the remnants of the supporting corbels, and they filled the void above. And that void would have originally taken the end of the beam that ran across the loft. And when, when would they have done this, do you think? Probably in the 18th century, because we know that there are references to, um, say, for instance, the rude loft was still here in the, 17, in, in the, in the 16th century. But they, they mentioned various renovations that have gone on. There was a big renovation here between the 1820s and the 1830s. Maybe it was even as late as that that it was done. But we can see on that stone, the V, and on the one in the corner, the V as well. And you can see above a fill of a rough fill where the socket was for the, um, the wooden structure which held the loft. Now, probably when the plaster is taken off these windows here, you will probably find that you have more of these corbels, probably over the shoulder of each of the windows. So you probably had eight of them. So, Jim, whenever you see this, for want of a better word, shoddy, shoddy, uh, would you describe it as shoddy or... Well, this, this uh, restoration work done yeah. in the 18th century, are, what's your feelings? Is it, is it a mixture of what a pity or this is fa- a fascinating window into the restoration process of that time? It's a bit of both. I would love to see the loft, but it probably had lovely late Gothic wooden carving and so on. And I'd love to see it because nothing like that survives in Ireland. But at the same time, you know... It is what it is. People change churches. Uh, any any churches is, is is subject to change to a degree. Uh, parish priest or a rector will go in and decide. Well, you know, we no longer need that, or it's it doesn't have any relevance to the liturgy and so on. And uh, they will they will make changes over the years. It might have been in bad repair by the time they did that. Who knows? Mm-hmm. It might have been standing there for since 1560 up to about, say, the 18th century. So it might, it mightn't have been, you know, it might have uh, needed a bit of restoration work at the time. But the solution yeah. that was found was simply to take it down. And uh, but again, you know, it's all any building like this. If it has a long history, it's going to be layers of different different layers of meaning and different layers of, of relevance and uh, different structural and architectural features that have, have become part of the history, whether we like it or not. And, you know, whenever we hear about churches that are 70, 800 years old, mm. uh, it, oftentimes um, what the church is is not what originally was. Yeah. So the original footprint of the church, is it still pretty much the same or was it much smaller? It was much smaller and you can see the evolution of it in places. 
And you go back to looking at the fabric in great detail. Uh, sometimes you, you feel as if you would love X-ray eyes, mm. but in other instances, it's quite obvious that the early fabric with the early windows, it was a mix of granite and limestone. Limestone was probably expensive in the 13th century, so they only used it for the dressings. In other words, the, 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 the stonework around the windows and the doors. But in the, the general, in the general fabric of the wall, they mixed whatever they had, whether it was limestone or granite. And since it was going to be, since the general surface of the wall was going to be rendered over anyway, it wouldn't have, it, it wouldn't have uh, detracted from the appearance. But, you know, you look around the church and you're able to, to pick up maybe hints as to what the earlier parts of it is. Certainly the choir, in other words, well, the chancel really, parts of that are 13th century. And where's that? No. Uh, the chancel is where the high altar would have been. Uh -huh. And um, But the window there in the chancel has been changed. Originally, it would have been a series of lancets. Lancets are tin windows with, say, pointed heads, but a later, a later window was inserted with tracery. So, so forgive me there, is that, is that the east end? The east end is over. Is that where, the, is that where you're talking about? Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so what we're looking at really is, um, we're looking at a, a wonderful jigsaw. <laughs> and Stressed over centuries. Exactly. And I mean, the priorities of a person in 1560 might have been completely different to the priorities of somebody in the 13th century. And again, they might be very different in the, in the 21st century. The needs might have changed, attitudes might have changed, religious practice would have changed over the years. So in some instances, the history of the, the architecture is reflected in the history of maybe liturgical change, uh, change in attitudes, change in belief. So all of these things are involved. It's not just a matter of, of the fabric remaining the same. Different styles come in. Um, it's even, it's like, for instance, people had, uh, there was a fad there a couple of years ago, people having... Um, basically glass houses attached to the house and that was a fad and then they found that really it was too cold so people decided well we'll put a proper roof over it and keep the glazing on the side but uh, so you know there are fads there are trends there are um, there are different means of heating a building um, in some cases the fabric heats it if it's if it's good fabric if it has a nice lime, lime <coughs> render, for instance, that will help to uh, preserve the fabric because it will, it's, it's a breathable sort of material. Um, of course, what we've done in October uh, and November of this year is only a fraction of what the church needs. And, um, and how, how do you decide what to prioritize? Well, in this instance, we looked at the church, we could see where the water was weeping down the insides of the windows. You can see it. Mm -hmm. You can see it. Oh, wow, yeah. You know? And 
we thought, well, look, let's see if we can get a good solution to uh, the bit that's in worse condition. So it's a case of urgency is prioritised, I guess, over... Um, whenever I'm doing anything, I, I have a spreadsheet generally and I have a column saying urgency, another one is mm. easiness, yeah. another one is impact. So, yeah. you, you know, you, you might be, find that something's quite easy to do and the impact of it is quite great and that gets a higher priority over urgency. So, yeah. do you always prize urgency first? You do, because you, you say to yourself you don't want to lose the fabric. So that's the, that's the basis, really, of a conservation management plan. It's like a, a spreadsheet that you describe, but mm. it's a written spreadsheet uh, in the sense that you you look at the building, you decide, well, look, what's what's going, what's deteriorating or whatever, and then you try to get a solution to it. And um, you ask everybody involved, the owners of the building, and uh, you ask your architects and your conservation structural engineers and your archaeologists and in some instances for instance uh, uh, we're doing conservation work at the moment at um, Menlo Castle you have to I was going to ask you about that yeah. so, so it's a, you, I mean not only are you running this you're also running the Three Castles project the Three Castles project yeah. uh, so there there's another aspect to it there's uh, the wildlife and um, mm. we had hoped to get in there and put up the scaffolding in September but uh, uh, the kestrels and the bats and uh, uh, the barn owls decided oh no we'll wait on another bit so we had to uh, wait until they were ready and is this, is this strange for this time of year? It, it's possibly unusual but I mean I suppose it, it reflects climate change and so on yeah. so um, we had to we have to take all this into account. It's a big balance between preserving the built, the cultural, the natural heritage and trying to get that balance right. So, um, but here it's going to take an awful lot of money and I know that Linda Pilo, uh, the rector, is, 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 is uh, appealing for funds for St. Nicholas's because there's only so far that the grants will stretch and uh, I'm sure that the people of Galway will... It's a much-loved church, it's a much-loved place. I'm sure the people of Galway will rise to the, uh, the challenge of helping to, to um, conserve it. Mm. It's wonderful. I, I've been here... The main times I've been here, actually, is to see the Contempo Quartet, and they perform... Um, the first Tuesday of every month at one o'clock. Yeah. And it's, although it's free in, you're welcome to make a, f a donation. Five euro is suggested. Yeah. So it's ongoing um, events like this, I guess, that help um, um, provide a little trickle of money coming in. Oh, it is, you know, and I mean, they do walking tours as well of the, of the church. And uh, they invite people to come in and make a donation. And the donation is is really a, a vote of confidence in the place to a certain degree. It's, it's saying, look, we value this place. We might be just visiting from abroad or whatever, but we value the place. And uh, let's just help out. At Salt Hill Media, 
We record the life stories of older people as a gift for their future generations. We appear to be the only organisation on the island of Ireland providing this service. What does that look like? An older person sits and answers questions about their life stories. For instance, what were their holidays like as children? Where did their parents meet? And what were their jobs? Where's their final resting place? And what about their parents? And so on. This is a perfect gift for people who hit another milestone. For example, a retirement gift, entering a new decade, a significant wedding anniversary, or it could just be a regular gift. The clever thing about this is that it is a time capsule to be enjoyed for future generations to come. Some people say, but my life story is not that interesting. It is interesting to those who follow after you. Other people remark, I could do this myself. We say, and so you should. However, more often than not, these life stories do not get recorded. So we advise that you go to salthillmedia.com and book a recording session for three months time. If in three months time, your recording has not happened, then we will do that for you. Go to salthillmedia.com today to book your life recording. Thank you. This is the Galway Podcast. So what else do you think we should be covering today? What else would you like to... Well, I have a great interest in stone sculpture. Um, and, uh, you know, Seamus Murphy's uh, book, Stone Mad. He was a mason, stone mason. What year? Uh, in the 50s. And, uh, but uh, I just have a, a feel for stone. And I, when I was working in, when I was a student and thinking of doing a thesis on, uh, on stonework and sculpture, I went first and I uh, helped out in mason's yards and so on to get the knowledge. So I began to know all about the, the marks that a particular type of chisel will make and so on. So I have my favourite carvings. Uh, I don't tell them that because, you know, they might get jealous, but I do have, I do have a series of favourite medieval carvings. I'll show you one. I don't want to be biased against the others now, just in case that they get a bit jealous. Yeah. We'll have a look at one. Okay. He's perched up here on the side of um, one of the, the piers supporting the church. And he has that angelic look on his face as if he has just snuck down out of his perch, flew across there to Cheek Holy, had a quick pint, and he has a lovely, delightful, smug smile on his face, that satisfied look. And he must date around 1500. But I'd say that whoever carved had a wonderful sense of humour. They weren't just carving something that was religious, which was, of course it was, but they were carving something with heart. And they were carving it out of a love of being able to depict a nice smile on a happy face. And uh, it shows something about the human nature of the, of the sculptures. But uh, if you look up and see him, 
you could almost, you could say it makes your day because he's a gentle smile, but he's there. I think I know the one you're talking about. It's the opposite tickle, as you say, yeah? Well, oh, well let's walk to it. Well, it's internal or external? It's here. On, oh, it's internal? Okay, it's I'm internal. thinking of a different yeah. one. Yeah, but, okay. uh, Oh wow, oh wow. Does he look? Yeah. Looks good. Pious and yet. Uh, and yet, it's humorous. The, 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 smile is, the smile is great. Yeah. I mean, the sculptor didn't have to put a smile if he wanted just piety. Yeah. But there you go. Look at the size of the wings. I mean, the wingspan. Wow, and the, yeah. If you, if you applied those proportions, you'd say, you know. And then his poor little feet are tiny. His poor little feet are tiny, you know, but uh, the sculpture, even before Red Bull, gave him him a great set of wings. That's brilliant. And so it says here just below it, it says, there's a a small sign that says 10E with a a griffin or something. So um, is it a griffin? I don't know. Yeah, there's a little, there's a little, there's a little guide to the church where you see the numbers and you go around and you follow the trail and they have a lovely little thing for, for children to look at as well. Um, so you have a piece of A4 paper and there's questions on it and you have to go do a little uh, jaunt around the church and find the bits that are mentioned. Uh, so it's lovely because it gets, it, it gets the interest of people, it gets them young. Yeah. Yeah. And so whenever you come in off the street, you can actually do a walking tour and, uh, sorry, a, a headset, and then you can dial in the numbers and find out. No, I think I think you just, it, it's not a headset thing, it's just all you, all you have to do is go and look and uh, uh, find the, the items that are either depicted or described in the little leaflet. Yeah. So, there you go. And when was the last time someone was buried here? Do you know? Well, what happened was in the um, in 1888 uh, there was a, there was um, a lot of the old cemeteries around Galway and Ireland in general were getting very very crowded and people were buried on top of other people and there were disputes over graves and they were too crowded so the whole concept of uh, a lawn cemetery came in. This originally came from France, where after the French Revolution, for instance, places were full of, of, of um, you know, they, they wanted to codify the, the way people were buried so that it would be hygienic and so on. So uh, the, the Act mentioned um, exceptions. St. Nicholas's had exceptions for people who had a vault, for instance. So for a number of years after 1881, uh, you could still be buried in a vault in St. Nicholas's, but generally um, you would go to Bohemore Cemetery. And uh, Bohemore Cemetery was non-denominational in the sense that it was every denomination. So uh, people were buried in Bohemore, and people were also buried in Rahun New Cemetery, Mount St. Joseph Cemetery in Rahun. So uh, an awful lot of the old religious houses, the churches, the Augustinians, the uh, Dominicans, for instance, they had a big cemetery. Um, the Augustinians had one in Fort Hill. An awful lot of these were officially closed, and they 
instituted these lawn cemeteries which were run by the local authorities and which were for everybody. So there were two of them in Galway, Boromore Cemetery and Rahunia Cemetery. So people tended to be buried there from then on. Um, so um, that's that's the way it, it happened really. It was more, more of a concern uh, for I suppose proper control and proper recording of burials. So caretakers were given books into which all the details of the burial, who officiated at the burial, the name and uh, address and the age of the person and so on. So that that was becoming standardised generally since the middle of the 19th century, but certainly from the end of the 19th century, you wanted to be able to keep good burial records. Now we're fortunate here in that uh, there are two books about the monuments in St. Nicholas's. Myself and Susanna Harrington years ago in 1991, we did a book where we recorded all 400 odd, almost 500 monuments in the church, and we published all the inscriptions. But we went a bit further than that because where we had a monument, we then decided to look at the burial records or the records of births, marriages and deaths. And those are now, uh, in the case of St. Nicholas's, uh, those are in um, the representative church body, library, the Church of Ireland. Uh, that's where they are. So we tried to um, record all the monuments. We, get, we went to the newspapers. We were able to use the obituaries in the newspapers against maybe an inscription that we weren't sure of, and we would get it. By comparing maybe three sources, we were relatively sure about the date of birth, and, or sorry, the date of death, and we were relatively sure about the surname, even if the, if the stone was, was one and so on. Um, after that then, there was a whole series of other records uh, which were uh, not mentioned in the inscriptions but which recorded uh, the, the marriages and the births and um, those were published as a separate book so um, those are available as well in, in published form and um, that's not the case with many other churches around the place. But since 2002, we've been carrying out a graveyard survey and we publish a leaflet on each of the, of the graveyards around the city. And the leaflet really has, in the middle it has a map and all the monuments are numbered. And then there's a potted history of the of the site, all 28 or so sites around the city. And then there's also a selection of those monuments then are, 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 are described, just to bring out points of interest about it. These then are linked to a website. We normally... Um, the, the link is made to Irish Historic Graves. So these are the group that do the graveyard inscriptions for us. They put all of these up online. 
And because the project is funded by the Heritage Council and Gower City Council, the Heritage Council also puts the text of these leaflets up online. So in the leaflet, you will get a potted history of the church, a map, the, lo uh, the location of each monument is, is, is on the map. But if you want to get every single inscription, say if you want to get all the inscriptions relating to here, you can go to the website. www.historicgraves.com Each county has a code, so it would be GA, and then um, the site. And then you will be able to bring up not only the inscription that we've recorded in the in the book but also a photograph of the grave so it's an invaluable resource mm. it really is um, it's great to have we've done it so far for most of the cemeteries and graveyards around the city there are one or two left um, there are one or two that um, have maybe only a small handful of inscriptions but uh, by the end of the year, we'll have every, every burial area uh, covered and people can get these leaflets uh, free of charge from the city council. Now, unfortunately, some of them have a great demand for them, so some of them we have to get reprinted. Um, but if there is a demand for a reprint, we will, we will do that. And are these um, pamphlets, uh, are they available online also? They're available online also. I forgot to mention, uh, um, when I was mentioning that the burials, uh, sorry, not the, the burials, but the, the marriages and, uh, um, and other records that are in the representative church body uh, library, that those were published by Br Bridget Clashen, the archivist. She published a book on those, so... For that reason, then, we have bought the Monuments book that myself and Susanna Herring Clay published in 1991, and we have Bridget Lesham's invaluable uh, other resource on the, the marriages and deaths. So we have a fairly good record of, of, the, of St. Nicholas's, you know. And, Jim, where would you suggest is the most fascinating graveyard if anybody is to go out on a tour? I think this one is great because you have humor in, and you have, I suppose, sadness as well. I mean, as you, as you would have in any graveyard. But I, I think um, this would be one of my favorites. Bohemore Cemetery would be one of my favorites as this well. This being in St. Nick's. Oh, uh, this being St. Nick's, but Bohemore Cemetery up in, up in Bohemore would be another of my favorites because. Anybody who has an interest in, say, um, the last hundred years, the decade of centenaries or whatever, you get almost a potted history of the, of the people involved, whether it was in the War of Independence or Civil War or whatever, when you go into that, that cemetery. But all of them have their unique feel all of them have monuments that I that I particularly like uh, it's very very difficult out of the 28 burial areas to to choose one really you know. choose one can you choose one outside of Galway City outside of Galway City I think 
some of the graveyards, uh, Kilmacdu, for instance, uh, near Gort. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, Clonfert, the graveyard there. Um, it has spectacular monuments. If you go back into the city, the Franciscan graveyard has some fantastic monuments because it has effigies, it has the symbols of the trade of the people who are buried. So you will have a, as you have here, you will have a, a hammer and a chisel mm. for, for a carpenter, or will you, you will have um, a, um, a horseshoe and a, an anvil for um, a, a blacksmith. There's a lovely graveyard out near my Cullen, the old farm graveyard. And if you want to see a lovely selection of 18th and 19th century vocational symbolism, that's what it's called, vocational symbolism. That's where you go because you have the different trades depicted. These people who, whose trades are depicted, they might have been the sort of people who wouldn't have been entitled to use coats of arms officially or heraldry but they had a pride in their trade and their vocation. Uh, so they used those symbols instead of heraldry on their monuments. My aunt is buried in, um, now I don't know the name of the graveyard, but it's the one with the airplane monument. You know, you know that one? That's right, that's the KLM disaster in uh, 1958, and that is Bormore Cemetery. That's Bormore, oh, okay. It's one of the two local authority cemeteries. And... As I said, the local authorities' uh, cemeteries were established from the 1880s on for uh, burial of all denominations. So that's in Bohemore. It's called the New Cemetery, but it's been the New Cemetery since the 1880s. <laughs> and, What's the name of that roundabout? Do we know? Uh, up at Monagisha. Okay. Monagisha. Yeah, yeah. And also, it's got this. Is that would you call? It's a mausoleum in the middle. There are several mausolea, and one of them is uh, the Morris family, and uh, they lived in Spittle House. And Lord Killanan would have been one of these Morrises. And that particular mausoleum is interesting because it's based on a, a structure called the Four Altars, which is actually up in uh, County Sligo. So it has an altar-like recess. It looks almost like an early Christian church, but it has a, a recess on all four sides. Mm. And there's a vault underneath it. And there's the coat of arms of the baronets, uh, uh, Morris baronets, who, were, who, lived, who lived in Spittle House. Uh, so it's the Lord Cannanan's family. Mm. So, um, whenever you're talking about overcrowding in graveyards, it made me think of James Joyce's writing where he starts suggesting that we plant people in vertically. And then he says, well, then the, the ground would become like honeycomb. And then he said, maybe it would be so structurally sound for us to walk over it. Well, you know, you have, you have, you have a lot of writing in Ireland about graveyards and... Uh, you know, Crane Achilla, uh, Martin O'Kine. Uh, you have where the people, the dead, are talking to each other and having great chats. Mm. And um, but the whole idea of vertical burial up in um, Castle Haggett, for instance, the owner of Castle Haggett House, he was buried uh, with his coffin upright 
on the top of uh, Nakme. And then you have... Do, do you know the reason for that? I think... I don't know whether what his logic was, whether he envisaged himself looking out over all his former lands or what, or whether it was just... Um, it was just... Uh, maybe that was the notion behind it, I don't know. But uh, when you go to churches all over Europe, Carmelite churches, Franciscan churches, Italy and um, and Spain, you will see some places where the um, bodies of the religious were placed uh, upright on the walls. And uh, some of them have become mummified. And, uh, the look, you wouldn't want to, you'd want to have your wits about you going in there at night, I think, you know, but, uh, you know, so people have done strange things with, with bodies. Uh, in, other, in other places, it's particularly common on the continent that you almost rent a grave. You have a grave for a certain number of years, and after that, then the unless you continue to maintain the grave, the, grave the, the, the bodies put into a charnel house. And charnel house is basically a void or a vault where all the, uh, the bones are, are put. So different attitudes over the, over the centuries. Mm. Uh, yeah, cremation was very common in Ireland in the Neolithic, in the Bronze Age and so on. Then inhumation, the burial of the body, then at various times became common again. And like anything, there were trends to it. Different types of monuments, different types of burials, difference, difference in attitude towards the dead. And in fact, uh, there's been a book published, I don't think it's even launched yet, by Gabriel Cooney on prehistoric burial in Ireland. And uh, he goes into all of that fascinating book but um, yeah so Jim I've seen walking tours outside St Nicholas's and they're always looking up at this clatter ring outside mm. can you share some information around that well the tradition is that well first of all you have fide rings um, friendship rings or patrol rings with hands clasped sometimes Sometimes with a heart, sometimes not. So yours in the clatter ring originally came from France. No, no, no. A fide ring is 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 a, a symbol of friendship. Mm. It's Latin for friendship or patrol or whatever. Mm. But you had those going back to Roman times. In the 18th century, then you began to get a version of those, which is uh, two hands, a heart, and the uh, crown on top. Now, the tradition is that a man called Richard Joyce was apprenticed to a goldsmith. He was captured by pirates. He was brought to Algeria, different places, different legends say different places, Morocco, Algeria, whatever. Uh, he was apprenticed to a goldsmith. He became very skilled. And he brought back the idea of the ladder ring. Now, you know, this is just an embroidery, really, of the of of the whole idea of a ring with uh, the hands and the hearts. Uh, but there's another tradition about it that he got the idea of the clatter ring. He was out hunting, and he shot an eagle, 
and the eagle had in its claws um, a version of the latter ring and that this was the inspiration but maybe that's a way in a sense of building up a legend around the Joyce's coat of arms because the Joyce's in their coat of arms have an eagle with two heads <laughs> and big claws so there's a lot of lore and legend associated with that but you could do a whole program on that in well, itself I, I was thinking about doing that actually you know the history of the clatter ring well I think we should go up to Round House where uh, Richard Joyce lived mm. I think maybe have a look for another program yeah. at that wonderful collection of clatter rings biggest collection I, I, that I think exists the, the wonderful collection Garrick the Brune had them uh, now they were all sold at auction in recent times mm. Gore City Museum was lucky enough to buy one of the very early ones but uh, yeah, yeah that would be worth the programme in itself yeah. and so the, the ring just on the wall outside the mm. church facing Ticoli mm. what era is that from or what oh well um, I think the, the sign itself is from the 70s or 80s I think there were two of them made and one of them was over um, another building uh, up in Maincard Street at one stage and a second one was down in uh, Key Street at another stage but they have been moved as the people who uh, make the, the rings and there's a whole series of makers around the, the town mm. Um as they have moved and of course an awful lot of clatter rings that you buy now they're made in China <laughs> we'll see no more with that okay Jim um, I just want to say thank you very much for your time today it's uh, it's fascinating that you have this information just at your fingertips you know you're like a Wikipedia walking Wikipedia of Galway his, history well the fingertips I hope uh, I hope I hope it stays in there, you know. <laughs> and that I hope in 50 years' time, when I'm beginning to get old, <laughs> that I'll still be able to transmit it from the brain to the fingertips and from the t fingertips back. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Jim, go to meal in my yogurt. That falls your oath. Slangify. This has been a Salt Hill Media original podcast and production.